Affordable housing is like uh, among the very biggest issues in the city of Toronto. Housing affordability. Both Jennifer Kiesmet and John Tory made it sort of cornerstones of their campaign last year. Uh, almost every poll of what issues people in the city are con- uh, uh, concerned about puts it at the top or very near to the top. Uh, Matt Elliott, uh, who's a city columnist, uh, he writes for the CBC as well, writing the City Hall Watcher newsletter. Uh, yesterday, during a panel, uh, asked Toronto City Manager Chris Murray what he'd build first if he had an unlimited budget, and his answer was affordable housing. Um, and yet, you know, we don't often seem to move too much closer to a solution. A new book uh, from Coach House uh, Books called House Divided, How the Missing Middle Will Solve Toronto's Affordability Crisis, uh, which I read just over the weekend and finished yesterday, uh, proposes you know a solution, or at least a part of a solution to that problem. It's written, uh, it has f- four different editors and quite a few contributors. It's a series of essays. But when you add it up, it talks about uh, how the sort of the missing middle, uh, so not high rises and not single family homes, uh, in what they call the Toronto's yellow belt, which is our established residential neighborhoods, how that sort of unlocks the key. One of the editors of this book for Coach House is Annabelle Vaughn. I understand she's on the phone for us now. Annabelle, are you there? Here. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Good, thanks. First, congratulations on the book. I, as I mentioned, I just finished reading it yesterday, and I, I thought it was great and thought-provoking. Excellent. That's good to hear. That was the sort of aim and intent of putting this collection of essays together was to get a conversation started. So uh, let's first, uh, for for people who are unfamiliar, the subtitle itself talks about how the missing middle can can solve Toronto's affordability crisis. What is the missing middle? Well, the missing middle is basically anything that isn't a condominium in a tower or a single-family residential house, which is a house that just houses one family. And it's pretty much if you were to walk out into any um, uh, neighborhood in Toronto and looked up and down the street, you would see some of this housing typology because it's interwoven into all of the pre-World War II neighborhoods in Toronto pretty much. So especially so, in the central part of the city that, that now gets called downtown, but it used to be the, the entire city of Toronto and parts of East York and York, like uh, whereas less so in Scarborough and, and Etobicoke and North York. Yeah, and so the the older part of the city that, that grew up first around the, the sort of you know, what we now know as the downtown core has a, a whole sort of different makeup of, of housing. There are duplexes and triplexes, three-story walk-ups, small apartment buildings, and all of it's interwoven into neighborhoods. And what we sort of, you know, lovingly hold on to as the sort of charm of Toronto. And um, as you get further out into the older suburban, sort of that first wave of suburbs, uh, you get a more traditional sort of bungalow typology. And and it's this sort of belt around the downtown core that has been branded the yellow belt, which is mostly post-World War II housing. And this is where a large, there's a large land base. I mean, almost a third of the city, 200 square kilometers, sort of has a typology that is, 
losing density. People aren't moving out there. It's too expensive and um, has the potential to sort of take on more typology to allow for more density and variety of living type living types. Right? So I just want to like make clear for people what we're talking about. So when we talk about that yellow belt, that's areas where it, where it's basically very difficult because of regulations to build anything except single-family homes, right? So if you wanted exactly. to try and build a triplex or a four-story walk-up with eight or 12 apartments in it, it's like, if you can get permission at all, it's a regulatory and fee nightmare. But but really, most of our official plan and zoning, they don't really allow that on residential streets. But what they do allow is on main streets or certain districts, high-rise condos. So that's all we get. And yeah. and the book sort of makes the argument that in these mature residential neighborhoods, uh, the city would benefit from allowing, instead of just allowing somebody to knock their bungalow down and, and build a monster home for one family to live in. Which uh, is the easiest thing to do. You you could build, say, a four-story apartment that might have 11 apartments in it, takes up roughly the same amount of space, and yet the city makes that almost impossible to do. The city and the residents around. <laughs> and the residents, who, yeah. You sort of fight it, right? And And part of the book is trying to sort of get people to look at the variety of housing solutions that we need in order to house and and make housing affordable in the city for a variety of, of, of residents. And what we want to try and sort of unlock is the potential for these neighborhoods. But we're not expecting, you know, the city used to grow incrementally. There used to be um, housing that was sort of incrementally added to these neighborhoods that changed as as housing um, needs changed. And that incremental growth has kind of been stopped by the rigid planning regulations. And what we're trying to sort of make the case for is that if we open it up and get a, get more variety onto the, into the market, more people will be able to live where we actually have already invested lots of tax dollars into things like schools and community centers and libraries. And in a lot of these older neighborhoods, the libraries and schools are closing because there aren't enough people to support them or well, the community and this, centers. This might surprise people listening out there, but I, and you, you mentioned it earlier, but I think it, it may have got a little lost for some people who weren't already familiar, is that uh, there's an essay in the book that talks specifically about Seton Village, the area around Christie Pitts, but for much yeah. of the mature residential neighborhoods in Toronto, like a significant portion of what we call the Yellow Belt or or you know, established Toronto neighborhoods, including Scarborough and York, population has been dropping. Like, as much as the region's population has been going up, these neighborhoods, uh, you know, the, the the people have smaller families, seniors are staying in their housing longer and living alone there, more single people live alone, people live in bigger houses than they used to. So, so I mean, if you look at a what seems to be a successful neighborhood where houses are very expensive, but you wonder why the variety store can't can't still do any business or why the local schools are closing, it's because they've actually been losing population, right? Significantly. And this is this is happening all across the city, and it's really challenging and stretching, you know, uh, tax dollars that have already been spent. It's interesting in Seattle, they're looking at wiping out the single-family residential zoning and just putting in residential zoning and basically saying that anything that has existed in a neighborhood prior is going to be an outright development, which means that if there was a three-story walk-up down the street, then you can build a three-story walk-up. And then what they're trying to, encourage, trying to encourage is more population moving into these neighborhoods to sort of spread out the intensity. So 
in Toronto, what it means is, you know, we have these nodes that are just getting over, over, overpopulated, like Liberty Village, where all of the, these towers mm. have gone up. And so we have these nodes of intense densification. And yet the rest, you know, a third of the city is basically sort of sitting in this sort of almost, you know, resin of the 1950s where, you know, we don't have four to six kids and families anymore. We have a couple, right? And so these these neighborhoods are sort of bleeding, slowly bleeding out and it's killing their main streets, it's killing their libraries, it's killing their community centers. And 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 then you get these sort of weird places where the you know the school board is forced to sell the school. Right. And these these are <laughs> these are neighborhoods that a lot of people would consider successful and yet uh and yet, yeah, the and sustaining public services there with a lower population is difficult. Yes, and so it's kind of a catch-22, and because, you know, I think what the book is looking at is, is trying to just sort of open up a conversation and sort of go, you know, everything that we love and is dear to Toronto in these leafy, you know, sort of mature neighborhoods grew up incrementally, broke all the rules that we have now, <laughs> but has created these really dynamic and diverse and rich neighborhoods. And what we need to do is allow that diversity and that density and that richness to sort of seep out into these areas that have, you know, unintentionally been kind of landlocked. Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time, but Annabelle Vaughn is one of the editors of House Divided, a new book from Coach House. Uh, I recommend it highly. And thanks for helping us get this conversation started. Thanks so much.